Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Today we are continuing with our ongoing series of fixed income roundtable discussions with the UBS Chief Investment Office. Joining us for today's roundtable, glad to welcome back from the UBS CIO fixed income team, Barry McAlinden, Kathleen McNamara, Frank Saleo, and Alina Gallant. Moderating today's roundtable, glad to welcome Head of Taxable Fixed Income Strategy for the Americas, Leslie Falconio. So, Leslie, with that, I'll pass it over to you to lead today's conversation. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate it. And thank you for everyone that's that's on this call. Uh, what we really wanted to touch on for today's podcast is we you know, are near the end of the third quarter and we're coming to the finish line for 2023 is discuss our outlook for the fourth quarter and particularly since that you know although we have a fed meeting coming on the september 20th i think we the majority is at as we are at cio that the fed will not increase interest rates in september however you know we do have another two meetings coming in november and december the fourth quarter which could possibly create a little bit more volatility to the interest rate market, although our forecast is for yields to trend lower into the end of the year. And more importantly, we know we're looking for, after we have the stronger-than-expected third quarter above-trend growth, for growth to start real, to start declining into that fourth quarter. And, this, and there's a few re- – and into 2024, and there's a few reasons why we do believe this will be the case. First off, as we know, there's – you know, we've had higher interest rates for quite some time. You know, the Fed started hiking in, um, you know, March of 2022. You know, we have consumers' savings is starting to dwindle a bit. And, you know, you could pick your narrative into whether or not you believe there's going to be a soft landing or a hard landing. You know, uh, CIO is leaning more towards a soft landing camp without anticipating a recession. But that doesn't mean growth won't slow. You know, or the fact that we have higher real yields right now that is still constricting borrowing costs in the consumer and the fact that a lot of this fiscal stimulus that we saw post-pandemic is starting to fade. And as we look at how fixed income risk assets have done this year, they've had the benefit of, you know, really putting in a total return, even as interest rates have slightly gone higher than where we started the year. So I just really thought this, this would be a really, a really great time to talk to our, um, you know, specialists in terms of their outlook in terms of that fourth quarter. And, you know, we're going to start first with, uh, you know, Barry McLennan, who, who does a great job and has published a tremendous amount of investment-grade corporates, which is a sector that, in terms of allocation, CIO is the most preferred on. So, Barry, you know, particularly since everything that's gone on within your sector, as, as not throughout the year, frankly, um, you know, corporates have done pretty well. But how do you see sort of the fourth quarter um, playing out as we sort of go to that finish line? Yeah, thanks, Leslie. I mean, just in terms of uh, just performance, you know, this year, I mean, we have seen investment grade performing okay, um, not great on a total return basis, as you mentioned, because rates have risen. Uh, that's the reason we have a total return of about 2% uh, year to date. But it's the excess return has been quite strong really since May, you know, since that recovery uh, that the market has gone through from the financial banking stress. Investment grade spreads, um, they were at 150 basis points or so for an investment grade index in the May time frame down to about 120 uh, basis points today. Uh, so that, that's really uh, propelled the excess return. So the additional return you get from spread compression and coupon carry over treasuries has been um, pretty consistently upward you know, since, since that period. You know, as you think about the environment ahead, 
you know, we are um, now in a spread environment, you know, that's on the tighter side of things. It's about average um, when you consider non-recessionary environments. Um, but, you know, the additional spread compression that we might get is, you know, probably less than the degree to which they could widen, right, if you had some unforeseen, you know, risks in the economy. Um, but you have overall yields that are, you know, the highest that they've been. Really, you have to go back to, like, the, the pre-global um, financial crisis period to witness, um, you know, investment-grade bond yields that are in this mid uh, 5% range. So that's really where the appeal investment grade continues. I know we've been you know, talking about this in our previous calls, but you get enough cushions such that if we do see some widening investment grade spreads, uh, it should offset that you know, from a price return basis um, and provide that buffer. So you know, that's how we're thinking about total returns, where you can get that coupon you know, plus some potential price appreciation on top of that. And then just in terms of, you know, kind of the internals within the investment-grade corporate market, I think what it comes down to is, you know, fundamentally, a lot of the vulnerabilities that we see in, within the credit markets are, are more focused on the low-rated uh, issuers, you know, in the high-yield and loan markets, which um, I'm sure Alina will touch on. When it comes to these investment-grade companies, though, they really, um, you, you know, uh, alleviated from a lot of these vulnerabilities, whether we're talking about higher funding costs you know, most investment-grade issuers have really termed out their maturities exceedingly well. They took advantage of ultra-low borrowing rates back in 2021. You know, there's no discernible maturity walls um, that exist really within investment-grade, uh, you know, the credit space. And then, you know, in terms of, um, let's say, overall leverage, I think, the you know, maybe the surprise in the earnings backdrop for companies uh, has been something that's kept um, the, the leverage metric from deteriorating maybe as much as we thought it, you know, that it could, you know, um, earlier this year. And the fact that, you know, large cap company earnings actually look to be, um, you know, maybe near a trough in terms of the year over year decline could incrementally rise, you know, based on the expectations of our, our equity uh, colleagues. So in that environment, I think, uh, you know, any deterioration that we see in, you know, large cap investment grade constituents from just the, the leverage fundamental perspective should be a bit limited. So that's kind of the, you know, the fundamental picture still very much benign. And then on technicals in this higher yield environment, we think should keep a steady source of demand going for investment grade companies. Um, so, you know, we remain a most preferred view on the asset class and, you know, for on positioning across the curve, we do like both the short end as well as intermediate parts of the curve, you know, the short end gives you that carry with, with less volatility, whereas intermediate maturities uh, allow for uh, some price appreciation to occur, you know, as uh, rates we think do uh, decline over time. And on a sector basis, you know, still, still pointing out the relative value, I think, in financials, specifically the large cap globally systemically important banks, where we're seeing yet another increase in their equity capital requirements. I think, you know, that might prove challenging from the equity bank investor point of view, but it's actually quite positive from the fixed income investor point of view when you're talking about, you know, bank bonds or our preferred. So that's uh, our main recommendation from the uh, from the sector standpoint there. Thanks. Thank you, Barry. You know, I appreciate that. And I think one thing that you really highlighted, which is important for 
um, our you know advisors and clients to recognize is that we do have a most preferred in investment grade corporates. However, you know spreads are relatively snug, and you know it's, we're really right now looking for that interest rate and carry play. But you know one of the things that that we've often pointed out too, and this will relate to you know as we go to Kathleen McNamara, who heads the muni strategy, is that part of the headwind that might occur to investment grade corporates is that there's other high quality asset classes that might be viewed um, a bit cheaper, whether it's agency MBS and, and municipals for that matter. And we know that municipals have, have really have a, have a unique opportunity. So I wanted to you know, go over to you, Kathleen, in terms of how you see the municipal market playing out for the remainder of the year and, and what sort of pockets of vulnerability do you see with the sector? Sure, Leslie. Um, I'll just take a step back real quickly just to talk about how munis have done thus far in 2023, if we have a few extra extra minutes. Um, Munis did manage to hold on to gains thus far in 2023. The sector is posting a positive return of 1.4% and 3.4% respectively for tax-exempt investment-grade munis and lower-rated high-yield munis. At the same time, an index of taxable munis also posted positive results, gaining 3.1% on a year-to-date basis. By comparison, an index of U.S. Treasury securities is only about flat over the same time frame. Over the course of the year, Muni performance was supported by three principal factors. First, new issue supply was tight. In fact, it was much lighter than anticipated in the early part of January. Second, credit fundamentals remained sound. And third, we saw demand from individual investors pick up, and that was pretty much prompted by the more attractive absolute rates on offer not seen in over a decade. By contrast, bouts of rate volatility seen in U.S. Treasuries, influenced in large part by the Fed, Leslie, which you had spoken about, that did represent a headwind for the municipal market. Also, in the March-April timeframe, the regional banking crisis did contribute to some price weakness in the muni space, but on the bright side, that dislocation impacted only a very small segment of the market, and it proved to be temporary. Going forward, um, now that we're heading into the fall, we expect the muni market to witness some downward price pressure reflecting a weak, weaker technical backdrop that we're in right now. As a point of reference, net supply is now turning positive. That's consistent with historical seasonal trends, and it does represent a headwind for the market. As a consequence, yields can increase a bit more in the near term over the September-October timeframe before reversing course and trending lower by year-end, taking their cues from the direction of U.S. Treasury yields. Against that backdrop and a still slightly inverted municipal yield curve, we continue to favor a barbell strategy. I know that sounds familiar with what Barry McAllen was just talking about in the um, investment-grade corporate space. So in munis, we do believe that positioning is short-dated one- to two-year bonds for liquidity, along with an allocation to longer-dated munis, and that goes out to the 12-year to 20-year part of the curve. We believe it makes sense to lock in the currently elevated tax-exempt yields for an extended period of time. As a point of reference, yields on AA revenue bonds at the front part of the curve sit at 3.4%. That's up over 100 basis points since early January. And inside the 20-year maturity point, around that 18- or 19-year maturity area, yields on high-quality munis now sit at 4%. That's up by, from 3.5% in July. And if you think about it, 4% tax-free translates to close to a 7% yield on a taxable equivalent basis assuming a top marginal tax bracket, and in high-tax states such as New York, California, or New Jersey, the taxable equivalent yields on high-quality munis can exceed 8%. So to us, that suggests some pretty good value for long-term investors. In credit, 
although the prospects for a recession has diminished, that doesn't mean that growth won't slow. As Leslie mentioned at the start of this podcast, we do retain an up-in-quality bias for muni credits for now. We favor essential service water and sewer revenue bonds, municipal electric utilities, and state governments. By contrast, we continue to retain a cautious view on the higher-risk areas of muni market, not-for-profit hospitals, pockets of the higher private education sector, and some muni high-yield credits make that list. And finally, in the fourth quarter, um, i just end with we do expect to see muni investors start to seek some tax loss harvesting opportunities within the space. We've already been getting lots of questions on that. I'll stop there and remind our listeners that the next edition of our Municipal Market Guide is set to publish on September 28th. Thanks, Kathleen. I, I appreciate that. And, and that, was, that was a great summary. And just a reminder is that from a house view perspective, CIO's allocation is for high quality. That's where it's, that, that's where we have been positioned throughout this year. But, you know, we also have, you know, fixed income portfolios and multi-asset portfolios will have the ability to opportunistically, you know, take advantage of some sectors that have a little bit more embedded credit within that, within them, such as the uh, preferred market. And we did so in, in May of taking advantage of those relative value. But, this leads me to a segue over to Frank Saleo, um, who leads our preferred securities efforts. So, Frank, I wanted to sort of shift over to you and, and talk about those sectors now that have a little bit more kick to them in terms of both embedded credit and potential total return. So I'm going to really pose the same question to you in terms of how you see historically this past year, if you want, but most importantly, how you see us going into the fourth quarter. Yeah, thanks, Leslie. Yeah, when it comes to preferreds, um, you know, I'll be touching on many uh, similar themes already highlighted by Barry and Kathleen, but just to kind of crystallize this a bit more for the preferred securities investors specifically, I think we could see a number of tailwinds support the preferred sector through year-end and well into 2024. And these tailwinds include attractive valuation, uh, supportive interest rate outlook, resilient fundamentals, and favorable technical, so sort of a, a four-legged stool, so to speak. Um, looking at performance this year, preferreds have faced some headwinds, and when we look at monthly returns specifically, we see this uh, sawtooth pattern of alternating gains and losses uh, this year, something I've talked about in the past. Most recently, the sector had a mild loss of about 0.6% in August, and it's tracking a small loss so far in September. This follows two small monthly gains in June and July, and year-to-date, we're up about 3.5% so far in, in 2023, so you know, somewhat muted performance for the year, year-to-date so far, but that performance choppiness means that valuation remains favorable. Yields are about uh, six and a half to six and three quarter percent or so, well above historical averages. Again, similar to uh, investment grade uh, in terms of the current yields relative to historical averages, as Barry just alluded to uh, uh, at, at the start of the call. And uh, current yields, again, as I mentioned, six and a half to six and three quarter percent or so. That's a bit higher than those yields were at the start of the year. Um, now, of course, Treasury rates are also a bit higher than they were at the start of the year. So overall, Preferred yields remain well above historical averages, while yield spreads over treasuries are generally in line. But those current valuations against a backdrop of lower trending interest rates could produce impressive returns. Now, as I mentioned, preferreds have been under pressure since last month. That's been due to the treasury rates that have 
uh, spiked higher uh, uh, recently in the past several weeks. But we do expect those rates to trend lower from here, driven by slower economic growth and declining inflation, as Leslie, you mentioned at the outset of this call. So that combination of both attractive valuation on the one hand and supportive interest rates, a supportive interest rate backdrop could set the stage for solid performance over the next year. So those are the two main tailwinds I see uh, supporting the preferred space in terms of the outlook. But we could also add to that resilient fundamentals from the banking sector. Banks are the primary issuers of preferreds, and investor concerns about the banking sector have mostly dissipated since they first surfaced back in March and again in early May. And as confidence restoration continues with quarterly results in the months ahead, and and also as confidence uh, restoration continues as additional bank regulations are implemented, as Barry also mentioned a little bit earlier, all of this restoration of confidence could also provide a third tailwind for the preferred sector as well. And then finally, with respect to technical supply uh, demand dynamics, New issue activity has been relatively subdued this year, yet we've had $6 billion worth of preferred redemptions in August and September alone, and we may see more redemptions in the months ahead, especially among floating rate coupon preferreds that are seeing their coupons reset at higher and higher and higher rates. And this overall could lend further support to the sector, especially if the pace of new issuance remains low. So overall, Leslie, we maintain a preferred, a most preferred view on the preferred sector, the outlook is positive, and we continue to favor select preferreds from the largest U.S. money center banks, those globally systemically important banks, or GSIBs, as well as the super regionals. These may provide real uh, attractive valuation. I'd also point out uh, there could be some tax advantages as well, as many of these qualify as GDI qualified dividend income. Thank you, Frank. That was that was a really that was that was a great summary. And and again, just to sort of emphasize one more time, we do have a preferred allocation to preferreds, um, and within our uh, fixed income portfolios. And and you know, given the relative value that Frank had talked about, we you know we think that it'll be you know a tailwind to the overall returns of of the portfolio going forward. And I just wanted to switch really quickly as we shifted to credit. I want to go a little bit down in credit one more notch and talk about high yields and then move over to. Alina Gallant, who's our, who's our high yield specialist, and Alina, although we are neutral within the high yield sector within our portfolio allocation, it's been such a spotlighted sector because it is it does serve as sort of like a forward indicator as to what might happen within the markets or within the equity market. So we're really interested in what your take is on high yield up to this point, and particularly going into the end of the year. The high yield performed really well so far this year. It is up seven percent year to date. When we look at spreads, spreads are 98 basis points tighter from the beginning of the year, and they are 139 basis points tighter from their March wide. So really, pretty good performance for this asset class. Now, let me walk through some of the factors that we're watching over the next several months. So first, there's valuation. Spreads have been hovering around year-to-date tights since late July. So at these levels, we're at around 385 basis points now in spreads. We are tighter than the average pre-COVID 2019 level, which was around 407 basis points. And we are well inside of the long-term average of 550 basis points. So we feel that spreads are already pricing in a benign economic environment, and they're really not pricing in much downside risk. 
Now, secondly, uh, when we look at fundamentals, high yield has held in very well. We look at ratios such as net leverage and interest coverage, and those remain in good shape, and they're actually better than historical averages, but they are getting weaker. Net leverage rose to 3.6 times from its trough of 3.2 times, and we anticipate that as interest rates stay higher for longer, metrics such as interest coverage will continue to decline. Now, we're also watching the upcoming maturities. There is a big jump in scheduled maturities in the next three years. 25% of the high-yield index is scheduled to mature between now and the end of 2026. And at the difference between the coupon on the debt that's scheduled to mature and the yields in the market today are actually quite sizable. And this is especially true for the lower quality companies. So for double Bs, the difference is approximately 200 basis points between what the average coupon is on the debt that is due to mature and where the yields are in the market today. Now for triple Cs, that difference is over 500 basis points. So we think that as companies need to come in and refinance this debt, it's going to weigh a bit on their cash flows and credit ratios, but we think the better quality names have strong enough balance sheets that they can withstand this. We think that this is more of a risk for the lower quality companies. Now, finally, we're watching earnings. It is very difficult to predict what's going to happen with earnings. We think the market is pricing in a relatively steady earnings picture. Now, of course, spreads would move wider if the economic picture were to change for the worse. Now, having said all this, yields have been steady in that 85 to 9% range, which provides ample carry for the asset class. And really, it helps it withstand volatility as well. In fact, at these levels, Yields can rise by 240 basis points before high yield posts a negative total return over a one-year horizon. So the 85 to 9% range that we're in, you know, is historically high, but it also does provide some cushion against volatility. So overall, let me summarize, with the economy holding in stronger than anticipated and high yield fundamentals remaining stable, we feel like we're likely in a range-bound market for the time being, but we do want to be cognizant of some of these headwinds that I talked about, particularly as they relate to lower-quality credit. Let me stop there and turn it back to you, Leslie. Thank you, Lena, and thanks, everyone, for joining on, on this, this, this podcast. You know, it, I think it's a great uh, and informative um, in terms of the, the sector specialists in terms of speaking about each of their sectors as it relates to higher quality and those with higher embedded credit. Our next podcast will be um, at the end of November, and, you know, given the fact, as we mentioned earlier in the call, we have a lot of Fed decisions coming up, which we believe will set the path for 2024 and decide our allocation um, into 2024. But again, we appreciate you listening to the podcast, and I'll turn it back over to you, Dan. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the global wealth management business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only.
As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer. 